Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome and today we're going to New York City to talk to Christine Vegan, a mother and uh, also a very busy lady who runs an organization called Youth Justice Network. So good morning, Christine. Tell us about your academic background. Good morning, Peter. Um, I, my undergraduate degree is from Barnard College in New York City, and I have a master's in public administration from NYU. Okay. Uh, the focus of, of which was criminal justice policy. Okay, so how about your work background? You haven't always been at Youth Justice Network. Where did you work uh, before that? I, I started out, um, actually, my very first job after college was for a place called the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation, where my boss had just been appointed special master of a piece of litigation regarding Rikers Island and the conditions of confinement at Rikers Island. And so I, I had, uh, through him, was my very first exposure to being inside jails and more specifically being inside Rikers Island. And um, to this day, remember the smell and the stench of the first day I went there. Um, and it sort of helped forge what became eventually my pathway, which has always been in the area of either um, altern the development of alternatives to prison and jail, deinstitutionalization, um, mostly at the direct services level, but also for a time in government. Youth Justice Network um, is a place where I've been a few times, once at the very beginning when we were first starting the organization out in the early 90s, and then most recently over the last 12 years or so, 15 years actually, I've been its executive director. Wow, that's a, a real commitment to what you're doing. So who came up with the name? The original name, yes. Friends of, yeah, our organization's original name was Friends of Island Academy, and that's because the we were born on the school floors of Rikers Island um, in the late '80s, and at that time, on any given night, there were close to four thousand young people, who between the ages of sixteen and eighteen, who were being held in detention on Rikers for weeks and months on end, um, and. Uh, through a combination of threatened litigation and family and community advocacy, the city had to put a school on Rikers Island. Um, so the very first, in fact, it was the first time in the country that this happened. The Department of Education put an alternative high school on Rikers Island, and the name of that high school, or everybody called it Island Academy. Our experience there um, chiefly sort of the first principal of that first high school on Rikers and people inside and out who would work with those students um, came to see this perpetual cycle of, of readmission. And kids, the students in the classroom would, would really excel while they were in there and they would leave with very high hopes for themselves and, and the teachers for them and uh, determined never to come back but then within weeks and months, they would be back in the same classroom. So it was that cycle 
that gave birth to this organization that at that time we named Friends of Island Academy. And the fundamental idea behind it was if young people left and had somebody or something on the outside to assist in their desire to continue with school, their desire to move their lives forward, their desire to be and achieve all that they could, that they needed a somebody on the outside. And so Friends of Island Academy was incorporated as a nonprofit to do exactly that, to offer support on their release. And it was it was at a time, you know, in the criminal justice lexicon now, we use a word called reentry services, which didn't exist back then. But because we spent, as a country, 20 and 30 years locking up so many people, at some point, all of those people that we locked up leave. And so... Uh, the notion of quote-unquote re-entry was, was developed. And now in most of the major cities and just generally people talk about and even have departments of thing called re-entry services. Um, it's a word that I don't particularly care to use because it normalizes something that just isn't normal, locking up kids perpetually. And so, but back to your question, uh, the original name for our agency was was born that way. And a few years ago, um, more to capture sort of the, the depth and focus of our work, we renamed ourselves to more to better capture who we are and what we do. We named it Youth Justice Network. Though our roots remain at Rikers Island, we still go there to find young people. So what's the age of the, the youth that you support? Primarily 16 to 22-23-ish. They're older teenagers and young adults. And we, we, we intersect with them in different ways. The common denominator is the justice system. And young people who are either entangled, whether it's with uh, law enforcement or in jail or charged with a crime and pending or coming home from a state prison, the point of intersection is always somehow linked to the justice system. So do you have a relationship with both lawyers and police? I would say certainly with criminal defense attorneys. Um, we, our relationship with the police is less so, but, and by that what I mean is we don't, we have specific partnerships with specific components of the justice system, like criminal defense attorneys, like judges, and we intersect with any piece of the system that our young person is working on. So for example, just the other night, um, we went with a young person who had committed a crime about two weeks earlier, um, and we accompanied them to the precinct because they wanted to turn themselves in. That's a very rare thing, but that's an example of when we might intersect with a piece of the system. But our partnerships are are primarily with um, correction staff on the inside because we're going in with juvenile justice detention staff on the inside because we're going in and with criminal defense attorneys who, who are looking for help on behalf of their clients. You've got a very exciting uh, police commissioner in New York. We do. She's a. We do. She's a powerhouse. She really is. Yeah. So, having said that, what are some of the programs that you're offering? What I I think I'll start at the end. One of the most exciting things that is very recent um, 
and was a direct response to COVID when organizations like ours were pivoting to figure out, okay, what do we do next? How do we continue to be a lifeline to the young people that we serve? So overnight, we couldn't get onto Rikers or in any of the jails that we go. And overnight, young people just stopped coming out. And um, we were sort of scratching our heads trying to figure out how. How can we be there for them in this moment? And we were thinking, we thought, well, you know, we need to shift gears. And then that sort of morphed, shifting gears. Somehow that morphed into an idea um, which was to bring ourselves literally deep into neighborhoods on the doorstep to be available to young people. Um, our data has always shown us where the largest concentrations of our kids live and stay. Um, and it's this is not magic data. This system and this, we've always known that the communities where there is most extensive poverty and all of its symptoms and structural racism and structural systemic and intergenerational involvement, all of that you can nail down into about 10 zip codes in New York City. And so that's where we wanted to be most available. So our staff and our youth leaders literally get on this bus, which we called Shifting Gears. We wrapped in our colors put our advocates on the bus and drive into the neighborhood. And, you know, it took a minute for people to, what is this purple thing on my block? But what is what has started to happen is, is a real synergy between neighborhood and our life, our, our youth advocates, for example. The services, specific services that they can access um, actually begins with a person. Once you connect with us, you have a person. Everybody has a person. Um, and our title for that person typically is youth advocate. So that's the first main thing that a young person can get once he, he or she engages, once they engage. But also we have, we have an education division that offers high school equivalency classes and tutoring. Uh, we have a small career services unit that works one-on-one -on -one with young people who want to get jobs to expose them into, to expose them to internships, to help them put together a resume do a mock interview, um, how to search for a job. And the bus, in fact, the Shifting Gears bus is equipped with a printer and Wi-Fi so they can sit side by side with an advocate and do all of that in real time. Other services, it's less a service. We think of it less of a service and more of, of, a, of a blessing and an opportunity is we have a pretty robust arts program, both therapeutic and otherwise where young people engage in different forms of the arts, whether it's drawing, textile making, photography, um, music, to keep perpetually some form of exposure, not just for the sake of exposure, but because all young people, you know, it speaks to their soul and it becomes a safe place, just a safe place where you can come and, and draw or do over a hot meal. And we, we do that a lot. Because young people, I think what we've learned is in order for kids to, to grow and to thrive and to be leaders themselves, they need, they need the ability to have a, a sense of belonging and nurturing and hope, as well as all the other things young people need to grow. And so part one is always because they're fighting the pull of the streets, and it's a really serious pull 
you know, there's so much an HSC class will do, but if they know they can come a couple of times a night to one of our youth hubs, get a hot meal and be with others and talk or just sit and draw, no one's going to bother them or they're there if they want to talk. It just sort of creates family and that family helps create stability. It, it sounds idyllic. It, it is when it works. It doesn't always do it because kids have been through so much by the time they meet us. So it takes a minute. Do you involve former adult prisoners in your program at all? We we involve our, sort of the primary, yes, short answer, in different ways. One of our first messages to young people as they develop a relationship with Youth Justice Network and their advocates is that first you need to take care of you, what you need, where you want to go. Then you'll be in a position to be able to buy those diapers and formula for the baby. You'll be in a position to help your family in whatever way they need. And then when you get yourself there, you will become a leader in your community, in your neighborhood, in this work, if that's something you want to do or in whatever work you choose. And so that trajectory has been a cycle since our inception. Those basic my, my milestones of self, immediate family, community, um, and the Shifting Gears team, for example, three of its permanent staff, our staff, are young people that we met on Rikers maybe six years ago who did exactly that. Um, and now they're full-time staff members standing in front of this bus. About a third of our staff, plus or minus, are people who themselves have been involved in the system, have returned home from serving prison sentences, and this is their passion and this is what they want to do. So um, it's important for young people to see and feel that there is possibility, you know? And it's just, it's not, they don't look at 50 people that look like me. They don't look like, they, they hear from people who have been through exactly what they have been through. And that helps them in turn to be credible messengers for their peers who come up. Do you have a, an entrepreneurship program? Because a lot of these folks, uh, it's almost impossible to get a job path. So sometimes a path forward is to start a business. It is, it's the thing that makes so many of our young people tick. Everybody, so many of our kids eyes light up just at the thought of that because they have um what we've done recently on this on this scale is um over i think it was a three-month set of workshop we brought somebody in who met weekly through a two-hour workshop about how exactly to do that how to start a business and by the end of it, about five young people who had, you know, said we have a couple of kids who make their own shirts, who make their own, they, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They have their own line of clothing. That's the word I'm looking for. And they design it themselves. And we have one young woman who's very interested in mixing and matching the chemicals and the natural, uh, not doing it justice, putting together cosmetics based on natural ingredients. Um, we have a candle maker, somebody who created this extraordinary sort of candle holder art form. Anyway, for all of these young people, by the end of this 12-week workshop, 
They had set up their own websites. They had developed and moved their product forward. They'd learned sort of what are the basic elements that go into this. And then sort of as a sideline almost, emerging around the same time, a couple of our board members are leading an effort to put together a loan fund using their own resources with a set of rules and young people eventually, namely some of these young people that I just described who have created their own businesses, um, we're, we're setting it up this spring to have them put together a plan to go before this mini board created for Youth Justice Network by our own board um, and make a pitch and say, I need $2,000 in order to do X. Here's my plan. Here's my product. Um, it's small. We're not talking about anything of any large scale, but it's so it's incredibly impactful. There was uh, one organization that I was involved in, and they had a storefront. And uh, in the storefront, it was like a hub. And there were six businesses in this storefront. And when they weren't working in that storefront, they were back doing courses. And it was very successful. Beautiful, yeah. It's, that's a dream. Good for them. That's sort of, that's a dream. Another dream of ours is because one of the biggest issues young people face when they come home or before they get to jail is they don't have a, a safe roof over their head. Um, a lot of times we hear kids talking about where they stay, not where they live. And so our dream is to have a little building that we call Fred, my friend's house based on our original name. And downstairs would be a set of stores, some just purely to earn income, some for them to sell and peddle their wares. And upstairs, there would be sort of the kind of services and supports that we offer. And then above that, for two floors, would be apartments where they could stay as long as they needed to stay so they would be safe. There's another housing project that's kind of interesting. It's called Tiny Houses. And out in Western Canada, uh, what they do is they have tiny houses for veterans and uh, a second one is a place for indigenous people, tiny houses. And wow. Another, another one in a third place is a concept called an ADU, Alternative Dwelling Unit. And what they do is they work with our National Mortgage Corporation and they build tiny houses on the property of people who have houses and they either rent them out or they sell them. Wow. And that's, where is that? The, the, well, in Ontario. In Ontario. So that's extraordinary. Yeah. It's, it, it's kind what of a neat. great idea. Yeah, it is. And, uh, they're, they're, they're very exciting. Well, the, the one out in Western Canada is run by an indigenous lady. And it's one for homeless people. And they've got 21 indigenous people coming into these tiny homes. What an amazing thing that is. It is. Well, is that... Uh, if I if I Google tiny houses, I will find it. 
you'll you'll find some places. Yes. Okay. No, I can, look I, for I'll it. send you more information later. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So having said this, let's talk about your employees. You're in three offices, I think. We have three hubs, um, one in Harlem, one in the South Bronx, and one in Brooklyn. Um, we also have small little offices in a couple of locations like the Manhattan Family Court and um, one in a juvenile detention center uh, in the Bronx. And how many employees we have, do you have? We, yeah, we have about 55 employees in all. There are 55 of us. And... Um, it's a very special, I, I feel, we all feel it's a very special group of people. Um, we come from all walks of life. We probably have an age range of about 21 to mid-70s. We speak nine or ten languages between us from different countries with, with very different experiences, but with this common denominator of a thing in our soul that, that binds us, you know, that we all have this unconditional belief in our young people's ability to achieve and thrive as well as sort of the power of their voices in bringing and affecting change over time. So is Harlem the area that you engage the most with in terms of that we I'm sorry that you that engage we what? with in terms of possible problems? No actually it's you know it's all over the city and there's all three of our sites physical sites are are all pretty vibrant it's it's really about where young people live and as i was saying earlier um it's it's really unfortunate how concentrations of poverty have bred the cycles of of violence and incarceration and trauma that they have bred so our are the places we are are because um in all three cases, it's sort of a neutral territory within that neighborhood or that borough where young people um, will come, their families will come. And even there, you know, we talk a lot here about public safety. And what's very true is that young people's safety is what's also very much at risk. You know, it's the sound bites and the rhetoric lend themselves much more to being about a public that is unsafe from young people like ours, when in fact the reality is, uh, you know, our young people are born into circumstances of poverty and intergenerational everything that that makes them unsafe. We have kids who can't come to this site or that site because they can't cross this street or that street because they're afraid. They're afraid of retaliation or they're afraid of this. So. Three years from today, yeah. what is Youth Justice Network going to look like? I see an organization that, you know, earlier when I was telling you about the building, that's one dream that we've all always had. And to have whether it's a brownstone or a building like that in any neighborhood that needs it. And that would be my dream. And we would start with the first one and we would start probably in Harlem, which is where we sort of first emerged. I also see sort of it, it being led by 
a group of leaders who themselves are the people who today are standing in front of the shifting gears bus. Now, there's a congresswoman in Massachusetts whose name is Ayanna Presley, and she said something once that never left me, never left me. She said, the people who are closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And the solutions to, to violence and the structural racism that plague communities across the United States are in their ability to bring those voices to the power table. And to the extent that Youth Justice Network can help promote that, that's where I see us in three years more so than we are today, more so than we were 20 years ago and 30 years ago. You've got an interesting mayor and an interesting governor. Are they supportive or aware of what you're doing? Um, a substantial piece of our funding does come from the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. And um, they're in New York City anyway, there are a handful of, of organizations that formally receive funding for these services, again, known as reentry and diversion. But then there is, the city is rich, very, very rich with smaller nonprofits across the city that do God's work in every piece of the system that are not on the radar of the city in this state, and they should be. Um, so for a very long time, we were not either on the radar of the city or the state. And on the one hand, that was a real privilege to be ex almost exclusively privately funded. But to get scale, it seemed, you needed to get on the government radar, scale as well as power. And sometime about six, eight years ago, 2016, however many years ago that was, um, we were able to scale our model through what became a four-year pilot demonstration project, which essentially said every young person who walks into the door of Rikers, that's an emergency. It needs an emergency response. And everybody who walks in that door who's under the age of 21 or up to the age of 21 needs an advocate in their corner to start inside, to start planning with them and supporting them inside, to prepare for outside and to get them outside and keep them outside. And we call that the Youth Reentry Network. And that was the manner in which we got on into the attention of the mayor's office in New York City. That was a different mayor. We have a new mayor now. But hopefully um, you will find this as, as wonderful <laughs> as we think it is. It is um, a sad truth, though, that, that some of the organizations that were smaller, as we were also smaller, aren't more at the table because that is how change is really going to happen. Change needs to start um, at the root. We could talk all day. You are passionate about what you're doing, and that's what really makes a difference in terms of your leadership. So mm -hmm. last, tell us about what your website is. Youth, the website is youthjustice.org youthjustice.org. I urge you to go to it and sort of file through and look at the images and see who we are and what we do. Um, and feel free to reach out to us. Yeah. Join us in any way that you'd like to or can.